This recording is copyrighted by Grant Susalu and is licensed and released under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. This recording is freely released for any personal use, including duplication and sharing in its entirety, and provided that it is not used for commercial sale or used in any context other than the educational context within which it was created, and that credit of its authorship is attributed to the copyright owners with links back to the website www.embraining.com. Please note that this recording is intended for educational purposes only and is not rendering any medical, psychological, financial, legal or other professional advice. Any personal actions taken based on this recording is at the sole discretion and responsibility of the listener. Hi, I'm Grant Suzalu. Did you know the latest research findings in neuroscience have shown that we all have three complex and functional brains, one in our head, one in our heart and one in our gut? Our book, Embraining, describes the scientific evidence for this as well as a suite of powerful yet practical methods for harnessing the capacities of your three brains to achieve greater wisdom in your daily decisions and in your actions. With MBIT, you can live more fully, more powerfully, and much more joyfully than ever before. I'm talking today with Dr. Stephen Porges. Steve is a distinguished university scientist at Indiana University, where he directs the Trauma Stress Research Consortium within the Kinsey Institute. In addition, he is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and Professor Emeritus at the University of Illinois and the University of Maryland. He has published more than 250 peer-reviewed scientific papers across several disciplines and he is the originator of polyvagal theory, a theory that links the evolution of the mammalian autonomic nervous system to social behaviour and is leading to innovative treatments in several behavioural, psychiatric and physical disorders. In the field of ambit coaching, we use the insights of polyvagal theory for master coaching practices. So thank you, Steve, for connecting with me today and being willing to do an interview and a dialogue. I, I'm truly thrilled that you were willing to put the time to this interview because I've been a, a fan of your work for I've been following your work for a number of years and I think it's it's a very profound body of work and a very profound theory that I know has gained a, a huge and growing scientific acceptance. Uh, it's taken you many years to get there, I know. So thank you. I, I deeply appreciate today's interview. Well, thank you, Grant. Thank you for inviting me to uh, to talk to you and to talk to the people who are listening to this podcast. Pleasure. So, uh, Steve, I thought that we might start with just an overview of, if you wouldn't mind giving an overview of your work and theory. So there, there are different ways that stories can be told or narratives can be built. And the polyvagal theory I, I'll kind of build it from how it evolved, and then please interrupt me if I keep going on too long. I think we need to go back to really what were the basic research questions that many of us were interested in. When I use the term were interested in and still interested in, I'm talking about several decades. So yeah, I've been doing research uh, actually since the uh, late 1960s. And these are, in a sense, we were talking about what type of index can you use to evaluate citations. So people talk about how often they're cited, how many articles have more than a certain number of citations. A friend of mine said, we need the D index, which is the number of decades we published in. And, uh, <laughs> and, yeah, and, good point. and what, what that does is it puts it back in perspective because when we think back, uh, when we were younger, when we were in graduate school, when we were studying things, anything that occurred more than 20 years before our time just wasn't, it, what had, it wasn't real. It was some, some fantasy. 
Massively denigrated, right? It just ignored. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, it, 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 not that it was wrong, but it was no longer of value. Yeah. So now uh, I started my research. My first publication was in 1969, and it was on actually things that people are still doing work on, and that was heart rate variability. And actually was the first paper published that quantified heart rate variability. And the second paper I published, or the second nature paper I published in the early 1970s, looked at heart rate variability in different ways. It looked at it as an individual difference, which is what everyone kind of uses it for now, but it also used it as a response variable. So that when people regulate their uh, heart rate variability, then they were engaged or processing information. At that time, I didn't know what the heart rate variability meant from a neurophysiological perspective. I looked at it almost phenomenologically. So, and in fact, people still do that. They just put different names on it. So my research was literally the first research to confirm and to identify the neurophysiological basis of what heart rate variability was about. So terms like vagal tone or cardiac vagal tone were words that I literally injected into the literature. And then I was in this kind of battle, this dialectic with people who were using arousal theory. And I was talking about basically more levels of organization. So polyvagal theory started when I was actually quite young. And it was this physiology of what made people resilient, what were they reacting to, and what was this kind of like phenomenological measure of oscillations in heart rate? What was it telling you? And this now tricked, triggered in me the scholarship mode. And the scholarship mode in me is different than many, I'm going, I'm going to be a little cynical, it's different than many of my uh, peers. Uh, the scholarship mode for me is to get the confidence that my ideas are consistent with the history of science. What my colleagues often like to do is to basically say that whatever they've done is original. And therefore, it can't have linkage to others, and they therefore uh, dispel or don't even read the literature. So for me, this whole notion of heart rate variability, especially the respiratory component, found its roots back in the early 1900s. And when people were actually measuring the vagus nerve and noticed that the firing of it changed with breathing. Mm. But so Mm. the actual pneumogastric nerve, right, was called originally. That was, if you read, that's in Darwin's book. He talks about the bidirectionality. Now, interestingly, this notion of bidirectionality through the vagus was basically lost in contemporary medicine and even interest in contemporary a lot of physiology. And the irony is that it's only about 20% of the fibers are motor fibers going from the brain to the body. The rest are sensory. So in a way, that sensory vagus is mapping our internal body. It's providing that information upstairs. Mm -hmm. And actually, I did a little bit of, uh, I listened a little bit, read a little bit about your webpage, and you talk about three brains. Yeah. And and the issue is you don't have to talk about three brains because they're all embedded in polyvagal theory because the the whole organization of this, all the from the gut to the heart to the brain is all traveling up the vagus and often through different vagal pathways. And we'll get into that for a moment in a moment. But I want to segue back and say that the theory was based first on observation and then on a true desire to understand the mechanism. And that linked me into the whole history 
of neurophysiology. But part of what I want to talk about is why was this of interest? You know, where is the motivation coming from? Why do we do the things we do? And there's going to be two uh, uh, points of convergence. One, I was a musician when I was younger. So I was a clarinetist. I was a, played a wind instrument. And guess what? Within wind instrument playing, it's all about breath. It's all about regulating the muscles of the face and head. And it's about listening. And it's about how playing the instrument is a major regulator of your own biobehavioral state. Yeah. So in a sense, playing the clarinet as a teenager was a re, was a discovery, an antecedent discovery of what polyvagal theory became. So I actually went through all the, these feelings. And again, if you link this to history, it actually, uh, the history or ancient history or religious traditions or spiritual traditions, they're all about breath, vocalizations and posture. They're all about regulating vagal function. And that's what breath and posture and vocalizations do. So that, that's one trajectory. The other is the adolescent male. And the adolescent male never leaves the adolescent, I should say, never leaves the adult male. Yeah, ne- so never leaves the shell, right? It's the ghost in the shell. Right. <laughs> the ghost in the shell is that of curiosity. And curiosity of what is going on uh, inside other people's heads. Yep. And when I entered grad school, uh, there was a new discipline that was emerging that was called psychophysiology. And I saw that discipline as answering this wonderful question of, can you tell what's going on inside the person's head and body without asking them? Mm-hmm. So this, if we move into really where the world is now and the world that I'm touching, which is a lot to do with trauma and trauma therapies and understanding uh, how you, you rehabilitate or reverse the deleterious effects of trauma, it has a lot of these common features. And that is the linkage between implicit or bodily feelings with explicit or cognitive use in our language. And that was the question that I was interested in when I entered graduate school. What can you learn about a person by measuring their physiology? What can you understand in terms of their intentionality? And interestingly, this is really the root of how we are solving problems related to trauma, because trauma breaks apart the implicit and explicit. People lose the sense of their body, and they live in a narrative that has nothing to do with their body. So we see these trajectories coming in and out uh, in my life. And the third one, and this is what I, I now kind of like, people say, what were you, do- what have you been doing? What's your quest? What's your journey? And I have now phrased it, my journey is in search of an intervening variable. Now, for many people, they don't know what that means. But for a psychologist or a scientist, the intervening variable is what's in between the stimulus and the response. So we live in a very, uh, mechanistic world. We think we can do an input and we get an output. And we create experiments and where we notice that there are individual differences. And we think those individual differences are really error. And this was actually the dialectic or the war that I was fighting when I started off in my work. Because I tried to emphasize the individual differences that could be accounted for 
by measuring another variable, an organismic variable. And that was my interest and focus on heart rate variability. And people would say to me, the reason you have heart rate variability, this is a true quote, uh, was that the reason you have heart rate variability in your research, Steve, is that you're not a very good scientist. And the meaning was, uh, the interpretation was the heart should be beating at a constant level and it only deviates from that if there is a reaction to a contextual or even a mental cue. It had the, so in a sense, the science of physiology and psychophysiology had not incorporated any knowledge of how biological systems work in terms of the feedback loops and how they regulate. Mm-hmm. So I, I have, you know, with my own naive uh, uh, strategies and my, uh, let's say, I, I like... Uh, I like competition, so you, you'll get to see different attributes of me. I like level playing fields, though. So I was a musician. I was also, I ran track, and I had a scholarship to college for running. Not that I did anything, ran very well in college. But the point was that I now had two different attributes that had a way of being evaluated. One was a subjective consensus. If you're a good musician, this defines you. But people are rating you. The other one was a stopwatch. It was as objective as it can get. And those two things, in a sense, I carried with me in terms of an understanding of what is quality. So quality is evaluated by professional or at least trained people who know what to look for or like musicians or by objective measures where you don't care about the runner's style. You just care about if he got or she got across the finish line first. Mm-hmm. So these became dialect, uh, part of my model building. But the point I was making that my journey has been all about finding that intervening variable that would be useful in helping us tailor uh, treatments, help us tailor educational programs, uh, and even social interactions. So it's all floating back and after it's now, let's see. So I basically have hit my 50 years, 51 years since I started graduate school. And the questions have just, uh, they've stayed with me and I merely matured in terms of the language, developing a language to describe the ideas and developing an understanding of technologies and even developing technologies to uh, enable the measurement and testing of these ideas. Mm. And and in the fullness of time with this, you've been able to validate this incredible theory, which you know has its roots in evolutionary history. You know, our, yeah. our phylogenetic history uh, as an organism, our embryological uh, development, our ontology recapitulates phylogeny aspects, and uh, and then plays out in everyday life, including in trauma or for our audience in coaching. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, Trauma and coaching obviously have some, you know, things in common. What what human doesn't have some level of traumaing experience, you know, from childhood onwards? So if you uh, often you're coaching people, they're, they're, what's in the way is the way. Yeah, you know, they both come down. So what I now again, I start developing another vocabulary, another set of metaphors, and I start to think about what is literally the target in our own sense of self and our mental structures. What is the target that trauma hits? And what can we learn about normal uh, behavior by unfolding it from trauma? So trauma, in a sense, peels off the, the case 
and we see the vulnerability. But trauma has a, a selective uh, effect on purpose, the ability to desire, the drive. And when we uh, in coaching, I'm sure you work around the same, uh, literally the template of one's own passion and finding a space in that passion to move forward. But what happens if that passion is gone or it, the person's body says, I just don't even want to be here? And that's what trauma does. Yeah, does fight or flight, does uh, freeze, does uh, downregulation yeah. of well, adaptive response, yeah. you know. Even if we think about fight or flight, embedded in that is a purpose. Yeah, of course. It, it, exactly. it is It is to survive and get there. But when we totally shut down, the purpose is gone. We just don't want to be. And that is really, uh, to my surprise, when I came up with polyvagal theory and started to describe it in terms of these phylogenetic organizations of adaptive behaviors, including this immobilization and shutting down, it was startling to the clinical world because they were assuming that all defense was fight-flight, and it didn't map into their clients' narratives. The clients was telling them they, were, they didn't want to be. They wanted to shut down. And part of what I am now, I, I actually have a projective question that I ask people, and this may be very useful in your discipline, I ask people if they can welcome stillness. Mm. And that's an interesting, let me say, it's a trick question. Because those who can welcome stillness have the capacity to self-regulate, to feel calm. They have a lot of regulatory capacity. Those who feel that stillness is the pits of hell, it's falling into that abyss, and they aren't real unless they keep moving, are the ones that have difficulty using social relationships and even using self-regulation to reach certain states within themselves. Yeah, they lack that ability to be dynamic and labile in their use of their autonomic nervous system, right? The, the, right. That dance right. of, of um, being able to, you know, both cognitively and non-cognitively control your your mm-hmm. uh, th- those desires you're talking about. You know, so if from my perspective, what, what I just heard you say was if if I don't welcome stillness, that is, if stillnessing is something that induces fear in me, yeah. um, then a fear, the fearing is the, you know, the sympathetic response. So if going into a, a dorsal vagal, into the, um, <laughs> you know, the stillness, the, the hibernation, the slowing down, the regeneration mode, or the freeze mode, you know, in its most extreme form, that if, if mm-hmm. I'm a Cecil the sea slug down in the ancient ocean, and I've only really got an enteric nervous system and a primitive vagal's uh, nervous system then uh, i can't do i can't move fast so uh, a stressor in the environment a danger in the environment i should look like a rock if i look like a rock i might not get eaten right <laughs> uh, so that's the freeze but you got you you got to take the cognitive stuff out of it <laughs> yeah <'cause>, uh, <laughs> because it's like, it's like doesn't have a cognitive function right? because if you put that in and people listen to this they start getting into blame and shame when their bodies shut down and that makes so it worse have, right that actually, right. that's the loop, the loop. If, if you, if you fear stillness, then every time you go into stillness, which is, which is a way of transcending or coming out, because there's two forms of stillness, right? There's one which is a social yeah. connection feeling kind of still and in a beautiful dance. You know, it's like when you yeah. play music, when, when you, when you're doing that music, right? With the clarinet. But we can juxtapose intimacy, which is stillness. Exactly. With 
uh, dissociative states during abuse. Which are complete disconnections, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're utilizing some of the same neural circuits, but in intimacy, you keep that ventral, you keep the safe, you keep the regulation going. And in a way, within your, your model of the three brains, it keeps the top brain regulating everything. Mm. So it keeps, so I like to talk about the ventral vagal circuit, the new mammalian vagus as the choreographer of everything else. Yeah. And which means it's regulating the heart, it's regulating the gut. But if you lose that and go into the sympathetics, then you're mobilized. And by the way, when you get mobilized, you turn off your gut. And when you go into the shutting down, your gut does something else. It gets rid of everything that's in it. You know, it evacuates. Yeah. Why? Because the ancient organisms that we evolved from would defecate to reduce metabolic demand when they immobilized for long periods of time, like hours, without breathing and without moving. Mm. Plus, it's a good camouflage, like distractor to a, uh, a predator. You know, if exactly. You, if you, exactly. you know, do a bit of scatological marking, if you do a little bit of spreading <laughs> of your scatting out, it, it's, it, it spreads out in the environment, especially if it's a watery environment. So now the yeah. predator is a bit confused as to where you actually are yeah. in space. Yeah. It uh, minimizes the chance for... Um, if you are damaged for uh, bacterial spread by, by releasing this bacterial load that's been in your digestive tract, and it, as you said, it decreases the metabolism. So it's a, a brilliant um, evolutionary strategy with multiple prongs, yeah. um, and we yeah. have our functional equivalents. So if people get yeah. massively stressed to do a test or to stand up, they're asked to stand up in front of a group, suddenly they feel mm-hmm. like they need to go to the toilet and they've got... You mm-hmm. know, um, diarrhea, yeah. etc. You know, nervous diarrhea. So, it's all part of the uh, same process, so, right? So I always, you know, uh, watch when I'm in conferences. You know, I'm on programs, and there's always someone within the symposium is in the bathroom right before. <laughs> you, know, you, you always, you always. I mean, uh, the 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 issue of of uh, of what our body does, even when we don't want it to do things. And I think polyvagal theory gives us a window into this autonomous way our body reacts and the way it detects threat. And that's, you know, I came up with this term neuroception mm. because I wanted, to, I wanted to remove any, uh, concept of awareness from from the decision making that our nervous system is making, so people, uh, I would have used the word perception, but that would have been so confusing yeah. because it implies an evaluation, right? Yeah. It's still a brain level response, mm. but not all of our brain is uh, embedded with conscious awareness functions. Yeah. So we have to respect the major part of our brain, which is outside of awareness, regulating these structures, helping us stay alive. And remember, the heart is beating all the time, and the nerves coming to that are reading the heart and controlling it, just like our gut. We have feedback loops throughout our whole body, which the higher brain is regulating lower brain structures. Mm. Yeah, exactly. In fact, that's why we called our book Embraining rather than Three Brains, etc. Depending on how you punctuate looking at the nervous system, you can see there is three core neural nodes that evolved at different times and have different prime functions. But it's really one big braining system. You know, the brain is a verb. Yeah. And here's another way. There's a a resurgence and interest in the enteric system, Mm. the the gut system. And the gut system does things when it gets a signal from that, from that 
New Vegas, when it gets a signal from the Vegas, it says, do your thing. So it keeps into an organized way. If it gets another signal, the sympathetics are free to constrict and turn it off. And if it gets a third type of signal, it self-regulates and basically goes into its own spasms. So, so in a sense, the vagus is keeping the enteric rhythms organized. It's having this very positive aspect to it. Mm. Our way of thinking about the uh, what, what the prime functions of the autonomic nervous system as a sort of a, an intelligencing system, you know, that does do higher or yeah. you know, it, mm-hmm. it does do higher order um, processing, yeah. etc. Um, we say it's both a communication channel because that's the way it's often treated as if mm. the sympathetic and um, parasympathetic nervous systems are just communication channels between the, the central nervous system and these peripheral systems. Mm. But, it's, but it is that, and it's also a controller of, of mode. Yeah. Right? yeah, and and we have to respect the fact that the sensory portions of the autonomic nervous system actually communicate with high-level as- parts of our brain, and it, our enablers are turn them off. So, so in a sense, if you're talking about taking tests and people get anxious, they can't access certain areas of their brain. It, the stuff isn't there. Yeah. But if they're kind of like relaxed and feeling, uh, these term welcomed, they become interesting, com- more complex people. So it's always been this titration in life. If you think about it, um, the other titration between keeping people motivated. And that meant get them a little bit scared, get them a little anxious versus um, uh, getting them too relaxed. And the answer actually within polyvagal theory says that you, when you're in certain states, you have all options <laughs> and, and don't take away your options. Yes. And don't think that the options have to be totally manipulated by external uh, sources. Yes. So we're talking about actual technologies. I'm actually working on a technology in which devices read our physiology. This is different than biofeedback, mm-hmm. but the device reads our physiology and we can program that device to support the context we're in. So let's say I was a, a, a track star. I was running and I wanted to, in a sense, get myself and I was a sprinter, so let me get into the different psychology of that. Sprinters are highly mobilized. They're, they, you know, when they have to run, they don't want to be too social. Uh, they want to get everything there and they want to blast off and get it done in 10 seconds, you know. So you may want your context to kind of arouse you, get you motivated mm-hmm. within the context that you can handle, not too much, but a certain amount. So you want that sympathetic nervous system to come on board but you don't want to lose all that vagal inhibition and calming. And we would have an environment that kind of modeled that. Now, let's say we're sitting in front of a computer terminal and we're monitoring this and you have a task of writing a creative story or, you know, something creative. Well, you don't want to get too anxious because, but you want to, in a sense, feel lulled into it. You don't want to go to sleep, but so the contextual cues are going to have to fit into uh, what we want our bodies to do. And so some people have tremendous range, and I believe that we can help support many others through tying them in through, uh, in a sense, making the machine part of their, their feedback loop, which is different than biofeedback. Right. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some of 
the emerging technologies to be able to do that and the insights, you know, the, mm-hmm. the neurophysiological insights to be able to know yeah. how to utilize those technologies. Yeah. And the, the choice you get once you've got that ability to get ah. refined distinctions using these technologies is amazing. You, you just brought up, you, you brought up a major point in that we live within our bioengineering world now mm-hmm. with this development of wonderful new sensors. But the problem is that the people who developed the sensors and were trying to create all these startup companies using it are literally clueless of how the neural signal is embedded in those sensors. So I've been working on so the other part of this technology is what I call a neural sensor. So it's the idea that you, it's not merely you're measuring heart rate or ECG, it's that you're extracting in real time neural influences to the heart or other parts of the body because it's through those neural influences that the feedback system can help modify your body. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. And I love that orientation. And I totally agree because I look at a lot of these biofeedback systems that are coming out these days. There's all sorts of startup companies. And it, it, it is like that when I look at the neuroscience or the, the underlying theories that are informing what they're doing, they're still working on stuff from more than 10 years ago. Um, but the sensor technologies are amazing, but their underlying neurophysiological theories are not... Different aligned. people do different things, and so the push, because of the solid state and all the software and all the computers and also silicon, people are developed very nice uh, sensors, but where would they be taught the next part of what to extract or how to extract? So in because... That's not part of their education. I I wanted to create a discipline that I called what did I call it? I think I called it psychoneurobioengineering or something like that. It was the blending of all these uh, disciplines. And the way the world has been going now is that you have your your bioengineer, your statistician, your physiologist, and you're supposed to work together, but you don't have a common language. And so the issue, again, is this notion of how do you communicate? You need a common language or you're going to, in a sense, not do anything very important. Yeah, yeah. And the polyvagal theory, I I believe, is a synthesis point for that sort of very Mm -hmm. diverse range. As I was saying to you before the interview started, when I read your papers and, and your work, yeah, it's very eclectic. It's both eclectic and erudite, right? You, you, you've gathered yeah. all sorts of insights from many different areas at, that would not normally be, yeah. you know, within the absolute tiny scope of the way a lot of people will write papers or, or publish. And it's, yeah. it's, it's brilliant it, the way you've done that. Well, I appreciate the flattery, honest, but, but yeah, it's, it, it, oh, sorry, it, as I said it, before, it, sorry to be a fanboy, but. But, but, you know, as I said, we don't refuse it if it comes our way. But but the issue on this is when are you bold, when are you brave, and when are you really understanding of the world you're in? So uh, for me, I understood exactly the world I was in in academics, and I pushed it as far as I could in terms of the novelty or the innovation. And so I was always publishing. I was always publishing in good journals, and I was involved in societies. I took leadership and even management roles in universities. But part of my, let's say, in my heart and my passion was to say, I understand the constraints of where I'm working, uh, but there's more that I want to do. And so I viewed uh, a lot of what I've done as the basically uh, uh, acquiring knowledge and technologies 
to enable uh, and also credibility mm. to enable uh, creative work to occur. Uh, and I think about this. I think everyone should, in a sense, think about this, about when you're, when can you really be creative within the environment that you're in? What is acceptable? And we forget that uh, uh, peer review and colleagues are very good in terms of creating a degree of quality, but it's also a leveling. It creates, it pushes things towards a mean. It doesn't allow, in a sense, uh, out of the box or paradigm breaking stuff to occur because it's too difficult or too controversial. I don't even like the word controversial. It's too hard and too challenging for people who have really based their careers on very simple paradigms for them to say, well, that paradigm is very limited. What happens if I rotate it and see things in a different way? What have I missed? Or do they say, have I wasted my life? So they get into this bit about rather the of the curiosity, they get into the reflection of their own value, which is this defensiveness. Yeah, cognitive distance removal, as I, as I think about it. But if we have to put polyvagal theory into this, because we're all human beings. Mm. And in an academic environment, if you live in an environment that is highly evaluative, you are going to be defensive. And so you need to understand the boundary of where that defensiveness is useful and then reserve part of your life and your personal space for the truly creative things that you'd like to do. I, I love it, and it's it's playing out in how in what you're bringing out into the world, and and how it how it is actually being expressed in the world. So you know, I'm, I'm seeing that that shift of, uh, for example, you know, when I first started, came across your work maybe ten years ago or so, but in this last decade, I've seen a real sort of uptake and shift and focus on how polyvagal theory is being used. For example, in the mm-hmm. trauma field, and you know, it's coming into coaching and leadership and all sorts of spaces that previously it was not getting acceptance in. So seeing that sort of that creativity at work outside of yeah. your academia is, is really, mm-hmm. you know, it's great. Well, well, there's another part because where scientists are always playing to their niche, their peer group. There may be ten or twenty people in that peer group, and each one of them is playing to each other, and they're not interested in looking at the colleagues' work. They're interested in promoting their own. And they forget there's a big world out there with needs. Mm. And the beauty is that, uh, and this this is totally serendipitous, um, the trauma world was just so welcoming, and it helped me find a problem to work on that didn't have any answers mm. at that point and to try to create explanation. And this is really what I truly love. I really enjoy that part of it. Mm. It's been powerful because, you know, I, I've watched the burgeoning of uh, the trauma work with polyvagal theory yeah. and, and it, it, it fits so well and it provides practical techniques that people can yeah. use. Yeah. What, what, so uh, I got, I was receiving, you know, so many emails from both uh survivors of trauma and trauma therapists that I decided to put together an edited book. And the book is really poly, about polyvagal informed therapies and it has about 24 chapters uh, by therapists. And some of them you will know, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, Peter Levine, uh, Pat Ogden and Bessel van der Kolk have the introductory chapters because those are the three people who welcomed me into traumatology. They just, 
welcomed me yeah. and uh, and challenged me. So it was like this wonderful synergism. And the rest is by people who have basically incorporated polyvagal theory in what they do. Uh, and there's one person who was doing grief therapies. There's a person doing dance. There's a person doing play. Uh, there's even a veterinarian who talked about polyvagal, literally polyvagal informed vet clinics. Yeah. Because when you deal with animals, they have neuroception. They are picking up cues. There is a chapter by a neonatologist who wants to design a polyvagal informed uh, neonatal intensive care unit. So you start seeing this wonderful um, involvement and ownership mm-hmm. of others. Yes. And that was really the goal. The goal was, can can these ideas empower others? Yeah. And I just finished reading the galleys of the book, the actually the, the typeset part. And it was just uh, with a total heartfelt feeling going through it that I had never been part of a, a volume in which everyone literally wrote their heart out. And, you know, it was all personal. It was all about what they were doing and how it worked. And it was all their work. And and the book, by the time you got through it, my metaphor was it was like looking to see a crystal in the sunlight as it rotates. It was just sparkling out with different features. It was just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, with with our own work. I have seen when other people have taken the ideas of membraning and gone and and applied it in a way that I never would have with insights and creativity Mm. that just is completely their own. And it's so gratifying to see some idea of which, of course, as as I say, it's uh, something that really I felt strongly what you said at the beginning of this interview, which is, you know, when I was originally doing my Master's in Applied Physics by research, you know, we'd say that nothing, there was nothing kind of new, really. We're all standing on the, yeah. the shoulders of giants in terms of science. Yeah. If you went back yeah. beyond that 10 or 20 year period, there was all these precursor, this precursor research yeah. that had been kind of done and then lost, you know, in the, in the yeah. literature. So I don't think, you know, it's not, it's not about an ego thing of any of us created ourselves, but we emerge science as kind of a mimic evolution. And we, we can go even back before uh, structured science and go even into rituals yeah. and we it's start learning that embedded in cultures were some practices that are very simple to understand in terms of the neurophysiology but profound yes so the notion of a chanting of breathing and posture these are clearly vagal uh, exercises or exercising vagal break in my metaphor mm. and they were there for centuries, mm. and they were so important. The, the point that I always like to say is that there always were smart people, mm. and they might not have the same language or the same tools, but they had often the same insights, yeah. and they embedded those insights into their culture. Yes, and, and the cultures were successful, like if you look at something like Buddhism, etc., or yeah. you know, um, parts of Christianity and Catholicism were the same, the chanting and the singing, yeah. Um, groups together. We now know that you get groups singing together or chanting oh. together. That their heart rate variability syncs together. That there's increases mm. in oxytocin. There's all of these things that are occurring, stimulated by the voice-face heart circuit of the you know the the modern yeah, yeah. myelinated ventral vagal circuit. It's connectedness, and this is uh, as mammals, we have to be connected, and when we connect, those are all the benefits that come from it. So singing and being in proximity is just wonderful. Mm. 
It feels wonderful and it's good for you. So uh, thus yeah. these practices have worked because, you know, it kept groups together. And the groups that didn't do them didn't survive a couple of thousand years. You know, Buddhism yeah. survived 2,500 odd years mm. as as an organizational process because mm. it's got some wonderful, wonderful mechanisms in place to ensure that people keep with each generation, keep resonating with it because it actually works. So it yeah. may not yeah. have the science, but I, I think of it as primitive, pragmatic, you know, pre-science. Yeah. Yeah, insights. Uh, I, I, I do, and there's insights that could be gained from it. Mm, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve, I've got a bunch of questions I'd like to to kind of explore with you. Some of them are okay. like you know, you'll, there'll be a one-word answer. I suspect some might be a, a, a lengthier discussion. I'm just aware of how much of your time we're taking up and how long this MP3 is going. But uh, there, there's some things that I've been trying to find answers to, and I haven't been able to. So, would you mind if I just ask you? Sure, sure, something? go ahead. Number one off the bat was, how many neurons approximately are there in the whole of the autonomic nervous system? If you looked at the autonomic nervous system as an, an intelligent uh, network, is there any answers? Like, we know the enteric nervous system has ranges of, you know, ranges from some 200 to 500 million. We know that the cardiac intrinsic network has something like 30,000 to 150,000, depending on which study you read, etc. The head brain, you know, somewhere at 86 billion yeah. neurons. I, 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 first of all, I don't have an answer, but I will give you, uh, I will make a response. I will try to reconceptualize your question. And that is, think of the autonomic nervous system as all these organs together, but communicating with each other. Mm. So rather than thinking about neurons in the autonomic nervous system, the autonomic nervous system literally is your bidirectional communication of these organs with brainstem structures. But the brainstem is not isolated from the rest of the brain either. It's sending information up and information is coming back down. So the issue is when we start counting, we start thinking about self-organizing units. Mm. And when we think about the autonomic nervous system or a nervous system, not even the autonomic, we think about a, a regulatory dynamically flowing system. And I don't even like to you talk about the autonomic nervous system because it starts to make us think that we have something different than a nervous system. So people talk about the central nervous system and the autonomic. So some of this actually, again, historically, I went back and read a book published in the 1920s. It's by a famous physiologist by the name of Langley. He's the one who came up with the name autonomic nervous system. And it, you can download it for free off the internet. It's still, it's floating around. And it, it gives you tremendous insight. And he also, he talked about myelinated and unmyelinated fibers. And what he said is that he thinks that the myelinated are evolutionarily newer. So now you have again this part similarity with polyvagal theory because it's an observer, a talented observer who saw that. But he, has been misunderstood, and even by me, and I mis—I had misspoken about his work and said that he uh, fostered the notion of the autonomic nervous system as just being a motor system. And what he was trying to do was say there's a way of organizing the motor output system, not that that was the entire autonomic nervous system. People got caught because he, he framed the term, he created the term autonomic nervous system, the, the, the irony is that 
That's the way it was taught in medical school. It's probably still being taught that way as a motor system. It is. Uh, the, to do the Master Coach, MBIT Master Coach, develop that program, I really wanted to work out you know, what was going on with the autonomic nervous system, seeing it's the yeah. communication and control, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, sort of connectivity, as you're saying, between all of these organs and systems and within within the body. I came across people like you know yourself and Bud Craig's work, etc., yeah. uh, on on this you know high fidelity sensorium of just how much yeah. sensory information is coming back up. Like eighty percent of it's afferent to the head brain rather than yeah. efferent, and yet yeah. w- majority of the anatomy, physiology, papers, books, websites, articles, uh-huh. all st- still saying that the autonomic nervous system is largely a motor system. It's kind of shifted in about the last year and a half, two years, in, in what I'm seeing yeah, in, in its that, expression. It, the, the shift came in part because of vagal nerve stimulators, yeah. and they are they are treating the vagus as only a sensory nerve. Yeah. Uh, and because they view it as treating brain structures like epilepsy or depression or even now trauma. So they, because of their functional model, look at it that way. But the notion of efferent uh, or the autonomic only being a motor or efferent system is really vested in the misunderstanding of what Langley said in the 1920s. And I wrote a paper uh, for a book on neurocardiology where I go through all this. And actually, I'll send it to you because I think you'll have an issue. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, my, my next question is, in, in all of the autonomic literature, you know, they, they talk about the, the sympathetic nervous systems being fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, in, in polyvagal theory too, you've got, you've looked at the evolutionary differences between the two, you know, largely two arms of the parasympathetic or of the vagus, right? The, the mm-hmm. ancient unmyelinated and the more modern myelinated and, and, um, how that plays out behaviorally. What I've not seen is anybody describing or, or getting into, and, it, it, and I'm not saying it isn't there, but I'm saying I haven't found it. So that's why I'm asking, asking you because I know you're going to be so much more um, imbued and well-read in this field than I'll ever be. Uh, fight versus flight. Now, we know that fight is very, very oh. different than flight. <laughs> okay. in, you know, fear okay. versus anger feels very different. It's different neurophysiology. What's going on? Is there two separate arms to the sympathetic nervous system? Is there like an inhibition and an activation system? Do they evolve at different times? Are there separate you know, um, components in the, in the central nervous system? What's going on? There are different components in the central nervous system, but not in the peripheral sympathetic system. Okay, so the issue is we have different behaviors of approach, uh, which is fight. So, by the way, um, many people confuse, there's a confusing literature. So people have assumed that approach is pro-social. But there's another literature that studies that as aggression. Yes. And withdrawal is running away. So those are areas in the brainstem, in actually the periaqueductal gray. I don't want to get too much into this, but there are different parts of the periaqueductal gray which, when stimulated, create uh, approach aggressive behavior versus withdrawal behavior. But both behaviors require metabolic resources. Therefore, the sympathetic nervous system is involved as almost a unitary system. So fight and flight require mobilization. They require energy. That's why in polyvagal theory, I talk about mobilization. I don't talk about fight or flight 
because the sympathetic nervous system is a nervous, a, a, the part of the autonomic nervous system that supports mobilization. It doesn't mean you're always in fight or flight. You can, when you're dancing or when you're playing, you're utilizing sympathetics. And without sympathetic nervous system working, we'd be lethargic. We wouldn't even function. It's extremely important to talk about the positive attributes of mobilization and not to just lo- localize it on or focus it on a fight flight. Mm. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And that whole mobilization versus withdrawal, you know, and the approach versus withdrawal aspects of mobilization, the different you know, directions. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen confusion in the literature and, and the research across that when they pick, trying to work out left versus right hemisphere activation of sympathetic versus parasympathetic, they'd pick something. Hey. One researcher picked fear for sympathetic, another would pick something like anger for sympathetic, and then they'd get different left versus right hemisphere activation because of approach versus avoidance, you know. And we're stuck using psychological constructs, not even operational movements. So when people use the word fear, I ask one basic question. Fear with mobilization or fear with immobilization? That's right, because you can get that parasympathetic rebound into freeze right. mode. Um, and yeah. you get blends, right? That's one of the things I've seen is that you know different people can have different ways of, of moving through autonomic space, if we want to call it that, or autonomic mode, right? Autonomic activity. So the blends of sympathetic with the ventral vagus is play. Exactly. Yeah, excitement. A fireworks amongst friends yeah. on New Year's Eve. That's uh, a sympathetic with uh, you know ventral vagal, right? Now here, here's the question for you: What happens when you blend uh, ventral vagal with dorsal vagal? Yeah. So that's that's the interesting question for me. So that to me that would be something like chanting in a group um, of people mm. where we build that amazing. Emotional heart space resonance whilst whilst a deep stillnessing. Okay, so I'd use one word, intimacy. Yes, that's one of the things that when I've explored tantric, the, yeah, the tantric yeah. pathways and what they do in terms of producing elevated sympathetic whilst producing mm-hmm. deep safety with biological right. resonance, so that you know yeah. you get both that sort of a, a movement, a, yeah. almost like a, a symphony, uh, how you played a, a score. You know, um, yeah. through this this autonomic dance to get to a place where, when you pack the whole experience together, it produces a particular meaning of intimacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So one of my other questions is the other parts of the parasympathetic nervous system that travel down the spine and and go to the the, oh. the much deeper base areas of of the sexual reproductive and yeah. hind gut. Yeah. Areas yeah. which don't really, I haven't seen much expression or playing out in polyvagal theory, you know, because it talks about the vagus nerve. Uh, and, yeah. and some people that I have spoken with, I'm sure it's not you, but uh, others kind of almost then conflate the vagus nerve with the parasympathetic. They're kind of like, oh, there's a sympathetic and the vagus. And I go, but there are other hmm. bits. So I was just wondering if you'd talk to us about, you know, those other bits and how they play out in that phylogenetic pathways, etc. A bit more nuancing. Okay, there's all- great. There's also other bits of parasympathetic in that face. Mm. So your pu- your pupil dilates, but that tends to go along well with the rest of the ventral vagal system. But you're asking about the sacral system and uh, because the parasympathetic was operationally defined as a cranial sacral component autonomic nervous system. There was a recent article in Science in the past couple of years basically arguing that the origin of the sacral component is more like sympathetic. Um, the, the, there's very little, I, I have really tried 
to find out more about sacral, the origin of that, both phylogenetically and also neuroanatomically. It's extremely light in the literature. So I have this basic question that I've been always asking, and that is about where are the cells of origin of tail wagging? Mm, because that is that of part of is that part of the social engagement system? I think so. Look at look at it in a dog. I mean, absolutely. That's when they wag their tail. Well, they use their tail for other things as well. But yeah, I mean, that's the first thing that starts happening. It's, it's a cue. It's yep. a powerful social engagement cue. And I've been asking vets, I've been asking other people, and I have not gotten that information. I've been asking this question for over 10 years. Yeah. The other part was, if we go back uh, to earlier work that I did in the 80s, I was looking at what happens when you did things like pelvic tilting, because that uh, deals with the sacral area. The feedback from that did increase heart rate, respiratory science rhythm, increased the vagal influence on the heart almost reflexively. So if you tilt the pelvis and lift it up when a person's in a supine position, uh, the vagal tone went up. Right. You drop your hand, it goes down. And I also, I did this study with a Rolfer who was now a, uh, a physical therapist. His name is John Cunningham. And, uh, he we, he also did a project where he did deep abdominal massage, again, subdiaphragmatic, going in. That not only raised vagal tone to the heart, uh, it kept it up there for a day, or we recorded it a day later. So so it's like when people have this wonderful deep body massage, they're like in this uh, ability to feel very calm. Well, it impacted on the vagal regulation of the heart. It calmed it down. No one's really followed up on those studies. And those are really ob- almost like phenomenological. What happens when you manipulate these structures that deal with the afferent side of those, uh, of those parasympathetic components? What happens? Yeah. And I still, uh, you know, I still would like to see, I would love to see research on the neuroanatomy. Where in the brainstem is this all being regulated? And mm. that's extremely limited. So we just don't know at this stage. Is is well, the interesting part is we don't know, yeah. and few people are asking the question. Yeah. And and again, so what we learn is science moves when people two things they ask questions and there's resources to answer those questions. Say, and they get funding <laughs> That's and right. publication. <laughs> as, as well, the issue is um, funding and asking the question. And some questions have not gotten any traction. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, this is a, at this stage, this is one of them. Yeah, yeah. How that might shift in the um, socio-political, historical, you know, movement of science, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, and the more the more we know, the more it opens up to what we might be yeah. you know, interested to know. So that's a wonderful. Okay. Here's um. Well, maybe I'll, ju- I'll skip a question and come back to as a final question. Um, but it, it links to something you were just talking about, the deep gut massage. One of the things I was wondering about was to do with, you know, when you come to eat, when you come to do eating and fooding behaviours, right? So yeah. what, what we know is, of course, under the, the broad categories of sympathetic being fight and flight and parasympathetic mm-hmm. lumped together, you know, the non-polyvagal version of Parasympathetic is yeah. the feeding and fornicating and the tendon befriending, and we know from a um, the polyvagal perspective how to divide those up, right? But the, the digestion requires, as you said, you know, if you go into to fight or flight, it's going to downregulate the gut, you know, yeah. um, the 
doing its digestion thing. So if you eat while you're stressed, if you're in a stressful environment, if you eat on the run, you know, so to speak, mm. physically moving as if you're running in a, an elevated mm. sympathetic state, it's not going to be good for gut motility and what the gut needs to do to, right. um, to focus on digestion and, and mobilization of the breakdown products of digestion into the microvilli, into the bloodstream and, yeah. and out to the various organs. What's, so, so from my perspective, you know, from polyvagal, I just wanted to ask you whether I'm right or wrong or, you know, what, what, what's the deal on it? The eating and digestion, digesting is much more of a dorsal vagal than a ventral vagal because it's from subdiaphragmatic, right? Okay. The neuroregulation of the structures involved in, in, in ingestion or eating overlap with the neural structures of social engagement behaviors. Yes, they do. That was, yeah. Social meal eating. Yeah. So guess what? You go out, you go out for a drink, you go out for something to eat. Yeah, and it, the other part of it is, is when babies don't have a well-coordinated suck, swallow, and breathe, they have very poor, they're the ones who are greatly at risk for social behavior later. Yeah. So you want to always ask, there are markers. These are, so like certain, uh, genetic disorders like Prader-Willi mm-hmm. syndrome, mm-hmm. they have, uh, when they're born, they don't have a coordinated suck, swallow, or breathe, and their failure to thrive, and they're tube-fed, to make sure, but then as they get older, they're not getting the right feedback from eating and they become obese. Yes. So they have to lock the refrigerators and they treat it as if it's an eating disorder and not a deficit in the feedback loop. So we're actually doing research with them to try to exercise the feedback loops. Mm. So this is, uh, uh, so the first part of what you're saying is ingestion is in a category of its own. And if you go into notions of eating disorders, you find out that the people, especially those who overeat a lot, are not eating in social contexts. That's what I, that's what I thought. No, I just wanted to get your, your backup on this. I want to create this intervention called the eating club, where people who were overeaters merely put on their smartphones yeah. and had a interaction with others while eating as much as they wanted, and the social behavior mm. should dampen the amount of food that they're taking in. Yes, yes. Okay? Absolutely. So that's the first part. The second part is I'm going to tell you, I'm going to ask you a question. You live in Australia, you go swimming, right? Mm-hmm. You live near the beach. Yep. A lot of beach, now, a lot of beach culture. Okay. Okay, when you had lunch and you wanted to go into the water... Yeah, mum and dad would say, don't swim, you'll end up with a cramp and you can drown. Don't swim for at least an hour after eating. Now, how did they know that? I assume it's because some people did drown. I always wondered that question. How did they know that? Because that's polyvagal theory. Yeah, it actually is, isn't it? Yeah, it's saying that if you mobilize a swim, you'll inhibit the digestive process, you'll get cramps and you'll die, right? But they knew what I'm saying. This is part. I often say that it's all about intuition, uh, and the intuitions have underlying neuroscience to them. And what I'm saying is, your parents knew that. Yeah, our culture knew that. You know, whether it's been passed down from you know, grandma telling you know, great grandma all the way down, or, or intuitively, they dad went for a swim one time as a young guy and went, "Ooh, that doesn't feel so good. I feel you know like a uh, mini cramp stop." So, how long were you told to wait? 
There's something like an hour minimum. See, I was told an hour. Some people were told two hours. I actually ask this in some of my workshops. I find this a very interesting uh, question to ask. And that gives it time to liquefy and move through. And of course, you're a young guy with very rapid metabolism. So it is so digestion gets inhibited by mobilization, but ingestion is calming and downregulates mobilization. Yes. And, and, and those where it's ineffective, those people keep trying to take more food in yeah. as, as a way of ineffectively regulating their own physiological state. Because there's a developmental phenomenon that when we are born, the major state regulator that we have is ingestion. Very important. We need to eat. But by the time we become six months of age, the mother's engagement to us, or in many cases the father, becomes more potent than the food. Yes. So, so if the parent turns away from their child, the child will get fussy. But if the, so it becomes the hierarchy of our bodily needs shift from ingestion to social connectedness. Hmm. Yep. It's, it's like another form of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. 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 Poly, expressed polyvagally. Right, exactly. Yeah. We're getting to the real needs for our survival. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And our biological resonances and etc. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now, now that kind of nicely speaks to my, my last, you know, intriguing question that, that I had to explore with you, which was I came across a talk recently on somebody discussing the innovation of the back versus the front of the heart. So the autonomic innovation oh. of the intrinsic cardiac network. So from, from the more, more towards the spinal part of the, um, the heart network mm-hmm. versus the, the front. And I started, uh, sort of doing some research on that or trying to find if there was any backup to what this person had said in this talk. And the suggestion was that it was more of a, um, dorsal vagal innovation of the back of the heart, uh, even though it's a small amount. Oh. Um, and the front of the heart. And I did come across some evidence that there is about a 20% dorsal vagal innovation of the intrinsic cardiac network. 80% is ventral vagal myelinated innovation of the intrinsic cardiac network, but also that the right arm of the vagus connects to the SA node and the left arm of the vagus connects to the AV node. Yes. And I was just, so I was just wondering about all, you know, how this plays out and you could tell me about the differentiation of the innovation of the, the heart. I know, for example, the right-hand side of the heart up towards the SA node has much more sympathetic innovation than the left-hand side of the heart, which has more parasympathetic, supposedly. From papers I've read, and and from the perspective when you feel things in your heart, you know, when you feel those emotional, ex- that, that truly that embodied mm. cognition, that in that interoceptive experience in the heart, mm. different when we we've played with what we call spatial mapping of these emotions in mm. in the heart region, in the heart space, and there are kind of broad overlapping patterns. You know, there's personal differences, but generally we see that you know different sorts of emotions seem to be felt. In different places in the heart, it's not just the whole of it. You you feel you know mm. love and peace and forgiveness and, and joy and anger in the same region of the heart. They felt in different parts, and to me, they there seems to be a sort of a pattern of that explained by the neurophysiology of anger tends to be more central in the chest, and that sort of more peace and love kindness is a bit more you know broadly, but towards the left. And and it makes sense if there is a different innovation of these intrinsic cardiac mm. networks. So I just wondered what you knew about that. I will start by saying very little. Uh, well, <laughs> this is I what I was, in researching these papers, I, I, there was just, A, 
a mix of confusion and B, not much out there. But, uh, you know, I thought if anyone would know, you'll know. So. Well, I hope someone knows more. But there is a bias, and the bias is the right vagus is very powerful in the mammalian heart, and that's because it goes to the sinoatrial node. And that is really our first reactivity. And these, the AV node becomes useful. So if you do research and you start cutting the vagus, I did this uh when I was in, actually a young faculty member. So you cut the vagus going to the SA node. Well, there's still a vagus going to the AV node, and it ta- literally takes over. <laughs> and you start getting these rhythms back in again. Um, the question about uh, where you feel it. See, my guess would be that if you're feeling, uh, I, I would emphasize in my own metaphor modeling the power of the right side of the heart because of the SA node. And that these... Uh, when that starts uh, being retracted, so we're now dealing with, uh, in a sense, autonomous or intrinsic heart rate, uh, which would be taking off that vagus, then you start getting more of that full heart bit, and then the sympathetics would go on top of that. So it would almost like be three stages, a vagal withdrawal, uh, an intrinsic rate, and then a sympathetic excitation. Um, I don't know the front and back, part of it, of the heart, I had never heard. No, I hadn't either, and it stimulated me for a couple of weeks to just search for papers and search for studies. The, the reason, uh, because the primary neural influence goes to the the uh, ganglia, goes to the sinoatrial node or the AV node, those are going to be the places where uh, uh, the information comes and radiates through the heart and visualizes literally the the propagation of the electrical signal through the heart uh as almost you know as an organized pattern and if that gets disrupted you get things like preventricular contractions you get afibs takasubo ultimately they're metaphors for epilepsy of the heart in a sense it's like epilepsy and interestingly vagal nerve stimulation can be used to reduce because it sends the signal into the uh, cortical areas and keeps the uh, brain tissue organized. Likewise, you start finding out that people who have all these arrhythmias, when do they have them more? Under so-called stress situations, which would mean that that uh, sinoatrial node vagal connection is being reduced. The bottom line on your questions is I, I would like if you if you have any is even even informal data on uh, subjective emotions and parts of the heart. I'd love to see that because I think it's a, it sets a whole set of interesting metaphors that would lead to testable hypotheses, and that's how science should grow. It should it should ask those who are in the field to give uh, us their insights because we get often locked into the protocols and preparations that we're using. Beautiful. Okay. Well, I'd be happy to do that, Steve. I totally, totally concur that when when I hear people make so this this particular person who was talking about how when you're working with other people, you, where you're giving out emotion, so you know um, you're connecting and you and you care. Yeah. Um, the front of the heart gets used a lot, and you know, I was thinking in terms of how she was expressing it. So it's a ventral vagal expression, and she said you can end up with compassion burnout. And what you need to do is deep inner nurturing of your own heart and that comes from deeper inside and that's a, that's supposedly a different vagal innovation. I'm thinking, well, is there anything to back this up or is this just 
her metaphorical expression of polyvagal theory, and that's why I was saying, well, because if it's true, it's an important place to put interoceptive focus of where you put self-nurturing versus nurturing of others and how you feel it and how you meditate on it and, you know, those sorts of things. So So, so let's let's back off on on a couple little points you brought up. One was caregiving or compassion burnout. And my view of that is that you don't have burnout if you do these things in the right way. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the embraining model of it. You know, you do things. Yeah. This in, uh, wise compassion doesn't lead to compassion burnout. Yeah, and the other part is the front of the body, the ventral surface, is our surface of welcoming. This is this is the welcoming because ventral surfaces in mammals are vulnerable. We're vulnerable. So if you watch your your puppy or your cat. When they really feel safe, they do go on their back and they exactly. open up. Right. But so do lovers. So do exactly. friends. Exactly. So it's it's the concept of welcoming. I welcome you with open arms, opening up my whole, you know, chest cavity, etc. Uh, the, the, the stomach, which has no you know, bony ribs around it at all. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so it is this welcoming and validation of welcoming that creates the dyad. And we have to have a lot of respect for this. And it's not merely an action. It's a true communicated behavior. Yes. It's a loop. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. Okay. Well, thank you. That's really the the intriguing questions that I had to ask were some of these things that I can't quite find in the literature. So thanks for playing with them and and dialoguing about them with me. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to tell you that... I had never heard some of these questions before, and so there's no scripts to go with them. Um, so uh, thank you for challenging me and getting me to think about things that I had not thought about before. And thank you for a wonderful interview. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. Uh, if people want to know more about your work, what's the best website or the best place for them to go to? There is a website that I maintain or try to maintain. It's stephenporges.com. And it has some things on it. It has uh, uh, interviews, and it has uh, actually has a link to the intervention that I now have developed, which is polyvagal inspired, which uses acoustic stimulation to trigger the social engagement system. And we've been using it in the lab for 20 years with children with auditory hypersensitivities and social behavioral problems. And in February, it went went public, and uh, it's actually. Uh, been used, there's over 400 clinicians using it now, and uh, a few thousand people have been treated uh, with uh, uh, with effects that I saw in my lab, and it was, if you want to have a sense of of gratitude and feeling of self-validation, it's when someone writes you and said they, they worked with a child with selective mutism, and by the time the child had gone through, this is five one-hour sessions, the child was talking to the other kids in the waiting room and didn't want to leave and was showing them all kinds of things. And this happened with two selective mutism and children responding uh, very differently who had autism. It's very exciting to, in a sense, not cure people, but enable them to access that social engagement system. Yeah. yeah. So oh, people yeah, can learn more about me. Just go to my webpage, stephenporges.com. 
And there's also a well, term I use now, a readable book out there. Uh, <laughs> Oops. Yeah. I, I must say, uh, I struggle to, to read yeah. um, the, the book that was a collection of papers. I just thought it didn't do your beautiful work justice in making it a, you know, a more accessible, readable book. Right. Well, what people would say... I love reading science, you know, so it's okay. Yeah. A lot of the so, other people they, they would say to me, you don't uh, write like you talk. And I said, well, these are papers for a scientific community. I had no idea clinicians would really want to read it. I thought they might want to put it on their bookshelf, but I didn't think they would read it. Uh, so so what we did, I actually came up with a uh, – uh, I had several interviews that were I had transcripts from, and we uh, basically elaborate on those transcripts and put them into a book with a glossary of polyvagal terms and a chapter on uh, basically the neuroscience of safety. And that came out, Norton published it, and it came out in September. It's available on, on Amazon, and the responses are, this is readable. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, we, we use polyvagal theory as part of talking about the autonomic nervous system, you know, how you coach to it. And, and people say, should I read Steve's book? And Because I, I always you know, show an image of your book and some quotes from yeah. you, and then we you know, go through that. Um, how polyvagal theory pl- plays out from an MBIT coaching perspective. But I always say, well, you can, but it's a struggle of a read. It's such a yeah. shame because well, Steve's work is amazing. So I'm really chuffed to hear that I can now well, tell people. Uh, I'll get the new cover of the book and I'll put that up on there on my slide from yeah. now on and I'll uh, put it on my website. Uh, and, and if anyone wants to read the old book, literally read it in reverse order of chapters. Read the newer, the, the uh, clinical application chapters first yeah. then go into the heavier stuff honestly that's what i found i ended up doing you know <laughs> I, I was struggling going from front to back and i just flicked nah, back and nah. saw those papers and i went hey actually they're more interesting for me and i read those and then read it sort of yeah. backwards so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> good insight well that's brilliant yeah. that, that that new book's coming out. and the, and the one you were just talking about that uh, yeah you've been reviewing the, the other book is uh, you know I've, i i am my co-editor and the co-editor is deb dana who developed a uh Basically, a polyvagal, uh, she calls it polyvagal playground. Where, you know, she basically, it's experiential polyvagal. That's what she does, uh, which is just beautiful. But, uh, we worked together on this edited book and I'm very proud of it. And I was just almost tears in my eyes when I finished reading the whole thing as a collection. And I, I'm just, I just think people will enjoy that when it comes out. Yeah. Oh, I'll look forward to that. And once it's out, I'll put a link to it on the page I'll create for this, for the interview, because I'll, I'll create a web page for this interview and, um, it's under Creative Commons license. Anyone can download it and, and listen to and share the MP3. So thank you once again, Steve. I'm so thrilled to have enjoyed this time with you. It's, it's, it's meant a lot to me. So thank you. One of my heroes of science. So in this domain. So thank you. Well, th- thank you very much, Grant, and thank you for challenging me. That's <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> science, as we know, science only moves forward on the boundaries. You know, question everything is my motto. So, uh, uh, yeah, thank you, Sue. Okay, so good night, and thank you again. Bye-bye.